Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, we're just going to look at four verses of Scripture tonight. 11 through uh, 15, actually 5. I can't really count that well, but we're going to look at 5. We might just get to 4, but the goal is 5. And uh, Titus, man, I, I wish we had a lot of time because uh, I've just been learning about Titus and how he's kind of the unsung hero of the early church. You don't hear a whole lot about him. He, was, uh, he just has one short letter that bears his name from the Apostle Paul. It's just three chapters long. And if you've never read the book of Titus, you can do so in one sitting. And so I encourage you to do that. Just three short chapters, but it's chock full of instruction and doctrine and just practical uh, guidance from Titus's father in the faith, the Apostle Paul. Uh, Titus isn't as famous as Timothy. Timothy was also led to the Lord by the Apostle Paul and served him in many ways. And as you know, uh, was left to pastor the church at Ephesus. But Paul wrote Timothy two letters. And uh, Timothy is a little bit different than Titus. Timothy was a half Jew, half Gentile. And Paul, in order to further Timothy's ministry to the Jews, uh, had this grown man circumcised so that he could relate more to the Jewish people. But Titus, not so. Titus was a Gentile, 100% pure-blood Gentile. And he remained so. And Titus became Paul's example to the Jewish church that God sends the same gospel to Jew and Gentile both. In fact, Titus is kind of the forerunner of us all, us Gentile believers, because Titus was 100% Gentile. He had nothing to do with the Jewish faith. But Paul brought Titus to Jerusalem to a church that was predominantly Jewish where Peter and James were, disciples of Jesus Christ, to show them the same grace that brought salvation to the Jew is the same grace that brings salvation to the Gentile. The same Spirit that baptized you into the church, the body of Christ, is the same Holy Spirit that has baptized this Gentile into the body of Christ. And this Gentile is our brother in Christ. Paul brought Titus, put him before this whole body. In fact, Titus witnessed the first church council that was held in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 15, you can read all about it. And it had to do with... Do the Gentiles experience the same salvation as the Jews? And I, for one, as a Gentile, am thankful that we do. Aren't you glad for that? So Titus is kind of like the, the, the person, the forerunner of all of us seated here tonight as a Gentile believer. Not only uh, was he kind of a right-hand man to, to Paul and traveling with him in a lot of his missionary journeys, but he was entrusted to take the letter, the second letter to the church at Corinth. He took 2 Corinthians 2. Corinth, and then he was there and ministered there in that very troubled church. Probably learned a lot about ministry there in Corinth. He was also selected to deliver the offering that was collected by all the Gentile churches in the north and take it physically to Jerusalem and to the church that it was being persecuted. And back then they had no money transfers. You couldn't go to the Walmart and wire funds. You had to literally physically carry all of this money through dangerous roads, uh, where there was robbers and all of that stuff. So Titus was a man. You know, he was a man. He was a manly man. Paul writing to Timothy said, um, God's not giving us a spirit of fear. Timothy, you're timid. You know, you need, to, you need to take a little medicine for your stomach. Don't let anybody be angry with you because of your youth. You know, he was trying to encourage young Timothy. But Titus, he doesn't give any instruction like that. Titus was the man. You know, you delivered the offering to the church in Jerusalem. You can handle yourself. In fact, Paul took Titus with him to an island called Crete. Crete is in the Mediterranean. 
And it's just, it, it was run, you know, by, by Greece for a while, but then it became kind of a pawn with the Romans and whoever was in charge. But uh, Crete was a big, rocky, mountainous island in the middle of the Mediterranean. And Cretans were pretty rough people. They have a pretty bad reputation. In fact, Paul in Titus quotes a poet about Cretans and how they were liars and how they were lazy and how they were lustful people. And, and Paul said, that's a true statement. Paul says, I concur. Well, he took tough Titus to Crete to help him evangelize this, this island. And there were already some Christians there because we know from the book of Acts that on the day of Pentecost, there were people from Crete that had traveled to Jerusalem. So no doubt they heard Peter preach on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 were saved. Some of them were Cretans. They went back to the island and they started going with what they knew. You know, They just started telling people about Jesus. And so Paul and Titus later go to Crete and they start establishing churches. Paul leaves Titus on the island to finish the job, to set up leadership in the churches. That's why we see some qualifications of elders there in chapter 1. He said when you're looking for leaders, they have to fit these qualifications. And we use those today as we're looking for those people to lead the church. And so he says, set things in order, find qualified men to lead the churches. And then he gives them some very practical teaching and instruction. Titus 2 is quoted a lot by pastors that say, we want to have a Titus 2 church. What do they mean by that? Well, a Titus 2 church is a multi-generational church. We have young people. We have old people. The old people mentor the young people. They teach them the ways of the Lord. The, the older women teach the younger women how to, how to obey the Lord, how to be faithful. The older men teach the younger men how to behave, how to be soldiers of Jesus Christ. And so we say we like a Titus 2 church. We want a multi-generational church. And that's what existed on Crete. That was Titus's responsibility. But today we're going to be in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, because uh, the book of Titus also includes some doctrinal um, truth that's really encouraging and is a great practical reminder for all of us who are believers. Because, you know, when I mentioned that Cretans were lying, lustful, lazy people, does that ring a bell with anybody in the room? I know none of you are liars and lazy and lustful, but I mean the culture in which we live, our big island between the Atlantic and the Pacific, I mean, that's, that's a pretty good description of a lot of Americans, and that creeps into the church sometime. And so I think this practical reminder uh, from Paul to Titus about what he's to teach, what he's to preach, is going to be great for us to hear tonight, and a great reminder. So I'm going to begin... A reading in verse 11, and we're going to go to 15. And I've been working on memorizing this passage of Scripture, and I think I got it. So you read, and I'll quote, and uh, you'll never know if I look, okay? It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to walk through every verse, starting with verse 11. 
We're going to see five things uh, that hopefully will encourage you to be ready as a believer. Be ready. So, verse 11, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has been revealed to all men. So, first of all, we see our salvation in verse 11. And all of you are good Baptists here tonight. How are we saved? By grace through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And so our salvation that has appeared to all men is by grace. It's brought by grace. And there's two things that I want to talk about regarding grace tonight. The first is that grace is active that's letter A on your outline, under our salvation. Grace is active. One of the things I, I love doing as we walk through the gospel project, and as we go from the Old Testament through the New Testament, is to see how God uh, actively pursues us and initiates with us. Think all the way back into Genesis, when you think about creation. Whose idea was it to create the world and to create man in his image? God. Let us, the Trinity says, let us. Make man in our image. And so he creates man out of the dust of the earth. He puts man to sleep, takes a rib, creates Eve. The two will become one flesh. He puts them in a perfect place, surrounds them with a perfect environment, gives them everything they need with only one reasonable request. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Out of all of these other, from all these other trees you can eat, just don't go near this tree. Well, what does man do? We sin, right? And we sin, and Adam and Eve know that they're naked before God, and they're ashamed, and they hide. But what does God do? He initiates. By grace, He comes and seeks them out. And He asks them what happened. And then when they confess their sin, what does He do then? He initiates. Grace actively says, I will slay an innocent animal, shed innocent blood to cover your sin, and then to cover you with the skin of the animal. God's grace was active. And then he says in Genesis 3, there's coming a day where I will provide salvation. The seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. And he gives us just a glimpse of the gospel in Genesis 3. He, he's active, actively pursuing. And then we see the world sink deep into sin. And God says, Noah, I want you to build a boat. For the salvation of you and your family, God actively calls Noah, actively saves Noah, and so he saves Noah and spares him from the flood. And then he actively speaks to a man named Abram in Ur of the Chaldees, an idol-worshiping pagan, minding his own business. And all of a sudden, the voice of the one true God says, Abram, I'm going to make of you a great nation, active. God acts on man. God actively pursues man with grace. All throughout, we could go through all throughout the Old Testament, Moses uh, and the burning bush and then God gives Moses the, the law on Mount Sinai, and, and every time the children of Israel stray, God sends a prophet, actively sending a prophet, calling them back to himself and pleading with them. His grace is active, the grace that brings salvation. And then we go into the New Testament where he appears to Zechariah and says, you and your wife in your old age, you're going you're gonna to have a son, and he's John the Baptist, and he's going to prepare the way of the Messiah. And then he appears to Mary in an active way, and to Joseph, and then Jesus is born, and then Jesus actively, willingly, lays down his life on the cross so that we could have a relationship with him. And now this grace that brings salvation appears to all men. It's just out there. 
It's active. He is acting on us. And then the second thing we need to see about this grace that brings salvation is it's available to all. It says it's appeared to all men. We have a whosoever will let him come faith. We have a whosoever will let him come grace that's available to all men. That's why we can preach to everybody and say you need to trust in Jesus Christ. And if you just turn from your sin and receive the gift of Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross and believe in your heart that he died and was buried and rose from the dead, you can be saved. It doesn't matter what you look like, where you're from, what your background is, what color your skin is, what language you speak. Everywhere in the world, that grace that saves, that brings salvation, is available to all men. And it's actively working. And we have that faith. That's why we go around the world and preach the gospel, because we know that Jesus is already there working on hearts and opening eyes to that truth. And so the first thing we see in verse 11 is our salvation and that it's brought by grace and that grace is active. It's also available to all. Whosoever will, let him come. Whosoever will. Well, the second thing we see uh, occurs in verse 12 and it talks still about grace. It says that this grace that's appeared, that brings salvation and has appeared to all men, it teaches us, teaching us, Uh, to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And so this grace that reaches us also begins to teach us. Isn't grace amazing, by the way? That could have been a third A. It's active, it's available, it's amazing, it's amazing. And and one of the verses from that wonderful hymn comes to mind. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And so the grace that brings salvation teaches us something. Starting day one, starting the moment we trust, the moment we believe, it begins teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Now, the theological word for this is sanctification. And so salvation is by grace. Our sanctification is by grace. It begins the moment we believe. The grace of God begins to teach us that there are some things that we need to deny and there's some things that we need to delight in. Okay? And so number two is our sanctification. To sanctify something is to set it apart for a special use. To sanctify a person is to make him holy and that's what the Holy Spirit begins to do with us the moment we believe. And in order to do that, let's first talk about Letter A, the denials. There's some denials. And those things that Paul mentions to Timothy are ungodliness and worldly lusts. What's ungodliness? Sin. Anything that's not godly. Right? Ungodliness, anything that's not godly. What are worldly lusts? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Okay, anything that doesn't focus on him, things that distract him. What are lusts that are in the world that compete for our affection? Greed, materialism, money, power, all these things that the world puts out there, worldly lusts. We're to deny those things. The Spirit of God teaches us by grace that we're to deny those things if we want to be made like Jesus Christ. And that's a process. It's a process. Sanctification is a process that begins the moment we're saved, and it does not end until we graduate to heaven. 
See, one day we'll be glorified. We'll, our bodies will be changed and made like His glorious body. We won't struggle with those things anymore. We'll be free from the penalty of sin, the presence of sin, the power of sin in our lives. But for now, this sanctification is a process through which we deny certain things and we delight in certain things. Um, one of my favorite preachers is now in heaven, Adrian Rogers, and he talked about the trinity, the unholy trinity of temptation. He said that the world attacks us, Satan attacks us, and even the internal uh, sin nature of our body attacks us, and it's, it's a threefold approach. See, we have an internal foe, which is our flesh, our sinful flesh. Then we have an external foe, which is the world and its system, these worldly lusts that continually pull at us and try to distract us. And then we have an infernal foe, which is the devil himself, who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. And so the, the, the flesh attacks our physical self, comes against our body. The world assaults our psychological self, kind of our mind, will, and our emotions. And Satan attacks our spiritual self. And so... And so when he comes again, when, when, when we deal with the temptation of the flesh, it's things like, you know, sexual temptation, addictions, things like that. When we struggle with the, the fleshly desires of the world that attacks our, our psychology, our mind, our will, and our emotions, and, and has us um, switch priorities and, and prioritize things that just are temporal, and, and we seek after stuff instead of God. But Satan he comes after our spiritual life with doubt and fear. Those are the things that we're to deny. If we want to be conformed to the image of, of Jesus, we want to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. You know, I also believe later on in this passage, it says that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Well, I think that, that this present age means the time that we're alive right now this present age, and it's a pretty rough time. Would you agree? It's a pretty crazy time. I've always thought that liberalism was a mental disorder, honestly. Okay, I don't want to get too political, but it just doesn't make sense to me. I think, man, you have to have a mental disorder to believe that. But now liberalism is a monumental disorder. They're going after monuments now. This is crazy. You have to be crazy. Anyway, not to get political, but... Uh, I say stuff like that at home, and my daughters just roll their eyes. So thanks for laughing. I appreciate that. Uh, but I, I believe that not only this present age refers to the time in which we live, I believe it refers to stages in our life, life stages. And I believe that in certain ages of our life, we deal with different types of temptation. For example, I, I think that when we're, we're young, when we're young people, do you remember when, when we were young? <laughs> When we were young, we, we mainly dealt with temptations of the flesh, temptations of the body, sex, drugs, violence, laziness. And we struggle with that sinful flesh. And how are we to combat the struggle with the sinful flesh? How do we, how do we fight that? Well, we flee. That's the only way you can fight is to flee. Don't you remember 2 Timothy 2.22? Flee youthful lusts. Run away. Be like Joseph when Potiphar pursued him. She, she said, come and, and lie with me. He said, I'm out of here. And he left his coat in her hands. He bolted. He didn't stick around to see if he was strong enough to resist. He ran. 
And so we advise young people who are, who are fighting the fleshly desires, don't even go there. Don't even get in that situation where you will have to try to fight uh, the, the lust of the flesh because you will more than likely lose. Just run. Run. Flee youthful lust. Then when we get a little bit older and we're into the middle age, and some of you will have to let me know what that's like because, no, I'm just kidding. I'm 44. I'm, I'm there, man. Because I'm going to live till I'm 88. And so 44, I am middle age right now. Um, when we get in the middle age um, stage of life, we deal with really the temptations of the world. I, I need to have bigger and better of what there is. Stuff, right? Keeping up with the Joneses, being successful, climbing that ladder, achieving those goals because I'm not getting any younger and I've always wanted to do this and I've got to do this. And so we, we have that midlife crisis where we, where we have to explore things we've never explored and do things we've never done and we fight those, those temptations that the world has to offer, those worldly lusts come against us. Well, how can we fight those temptations? With faith. Faith. It says, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith, 1 John 5 we have to believe that there's so much more than what this world has in store. And then as we're talking about age, when we get a little more experienced in life, in our old age, we, we need to begin denying the temptations that attack our spirit because Satan comes against people who are older in age and, and he attacks their spirit with two things, mainly doubt and fear, doubt and fear. I see this all the time. Is what you've spent your life doing, is that real? Are you sure? Are you sure that when this life is over, everything you believe, are you sure that that's real? And then the what ifs. What if you lose your spouse? What if your spouse loses you? What if the reason you don't feel well right now is because you have a terminal illness what if these test results come back and they're not what you expect what if your family's not around for you when you need them the most what if your money runs out does that sound familiar that is satanic it is satanic and he attacks your spirit and he wears you down what i'm saying is no age exempts you from having to deny certain things and resist certain things how do you fight the devil, you resist him. You fight him. You resist him, and he will flee from you. James 4, 7, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And you tell the devil, that is a lie. My God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. He will never leave me and never forsake me. I know whom I believe it. I know in whom I believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. I have a home in heaven. And I am confident. And you resist the devil. So in our sanctification by grace. There's some denials that we make. But then there's also some delights. He says that we're to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. But then we're to live soberly. Righteously and godly. In this present age. How do we delight in God? How do we live soberly? Which by the way can also be translated self-control. Temperance, which I'm thankful to know that's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so if I struggle with self-control, I can say, God, help me, because it's your spirit strength that can help 
uh, strengthen me to, to control myself. It's a fruit of the Spirit. But we, we want to live righteously, do things that are right in God's eyes, and, and be godly, things that glorify God. And the way that we do this is we delight in the right things. We deny the wrong things. We delight in the right things. And, and the right thing is God's Word. It's how He speaks to us. We see that all throughout the Scripture. Psalm 1, Pastor Haley had us memorized. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 6, not too long ago. But it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in what? The law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. And then it goes on to describe the blessing of his life. He shall be like a tree planted by the, living, by the rivers of living water, who brings forth fruit in its season. His leaf also shall not wither, but whatever he does shall prosper. That's a life of sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Psalm 119, 33 through 40, the writer says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimony and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your way. That's sanctification. Delighting ourselves in the law of the Lord. You know, salvation is like being born. That's why we call it being born again. Jesus says in John 3, you must be born again because we're born of the Spirit. And, and when we're born of the Spirit, we become like a newborn babe. We're totally helpless and dependent. Upon our parents, right? Do you remember those days when your kids were totally helpless and dependent on you? Some of you, they're like, they're 35. And they are still totally helpless and dependent upon me. That's right. When do they grow out of that? And so they're still leaning on you. They're helpless and dependent. But hopefully, in the life of a baby, even though you begin having to feed them, change them, do everything for them, they begin to grow and they begin to toddle. You know, those of you with little kids, you know why they call toddlers toddlers, because they toddle. And weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Well, kids toddle, and they do fall down. And you have to be constantly watching. Where are they walking? What are they climbing? They're going to fall down. They're going to need stitches. But you teach them to walk, and they take a step, and then they fall. And then you help them back up again, and they take two steps, and then they fall. But eventually, they take more steps, and they fall less. That's a natural, healthy development. And eventually, this child that you had to help walk is now walking on their own. They're running on their own. They're jumping on their own. They're cleaning their room. There's progress, right? There's progress. There's growth. And the same is true in the life of a believer. When we come to Christ and we're saved by grace, the process of sanctification begins. That means we're learning how to walk like Jesus walked. And we take a couple steps in humble submission to the Spirit, and then in selfishness, we sin, and we stumble, and we fall. And then we confess our sin, and He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us, and then we get up, and we begin to walk again. And we take a couple more steps in submitted obedience to the Holy Spirit, and then we selfishly misstep, and we stumble, and we fall. But hopefully, as we grow, as we delight in the Word, and as we nurse this relationship with our Savior, we do more walking than we do falling. We'll never walk without completely falling, not in this life. But Lord willing, as we grow and mature in our faith and as this process of sanctification continues, we do more walking than falling. I could say so much more about this 
process of sanctification. Just one more thing before I move on to number three. You know, sometimes, sometimes, something goes wrong in a child's development and their growth is stunted. And we see that that's a problem. It's a visible problem. And what happens is they stop growing and it's noticeable. And I'm sorry to say this, but that happens in the church. People are saved. That process of sanctification begins, the Holy Spirit begins leading them, guiding them, and then something happens and their growth is stunted. Maybe they no longer delight in the word. Maybe they believe the lie that maybe just their presence in a building will make them conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And if I just show up at the right place, then it'll just automatically happen. And they stop cooperating with the Holy Spirit. They stop delighting in God's word. They stop growing in God's grace. And their growth is stunted. And how can you tell? And I don't want to get personal, but I understand that when I talk about this, I'm, I'm talking to me as well. We're a faith family here. And, and when a person's growth is spiritually stunted, they act like a child. And you see someone that's been saved for many, many years, and then something goes wrong, and they start crying and whining, and they pitch a fit, and they stomp their feet, and they slam their hand on the table because they're not getting their way. And when I see that, I see, man, something's happened. There's a problem here. And I, I know that we're not perfect as believers, and I know we're just people, and we need grace, and that's true, and sometimes we... We stumble, but if, if you've known Christ any, any number of years and you're, you're delighting in His Word and you're growing in grace, there should be some growth there. Paul says you need to put away childish things. You shouldn't still be feasting on milk. You should be eating the meat of God's Word and growing in Christ's likeness. And so sanctification is taking a step of selfless submission to the Spirit and progressing in that. Every now and then, we stumble into sin, but then we get up and we continue to walk. Well, that takes us through verse 12, but let's take a look at verse 13. Because after Paul tells Titus to remind people of the grace that saves and the grace that sanctifies, he says that we should have an expectation. Verse 13 talks about our expectation, number three. He said, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we should be looking for. We should, we should have this expectant hope that one day we're going to see our Savior face to face. That one day the one who gave himself for us and sent his spirit to indwell us is coming again to receive us unto himself that where he is there we will be also. That should be our hope. And again, I'm, you know, we live in a troubled time and we live in a rough age and there's some confusing things going around. There's troubling things happening even in our nation. America used to be a pretty safe place and now it's a little unsettling. But America is not our hope. A political party is not our hope. Earthly leadership is not our hope. Our hope is heaven. Our home is heaven. And one day, Jesus is coming again. Do you believe that? Amen. If you believe he came, if you believe he died and rose again, you believe he's coming again because he promised that. And so we should be living a life of expectant hope, waiting, longing even for the day where Jesus comes. 
I, I, you know, sometimes I'm afraid that some Christians will be more depressed about losing America than about gaining heaven. You know, we should be eager, anxious, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I was talking to uh, some of the ladies that go out on Tuesday visiting, and Miss Barbara Wim. Uh, is she here tonight? Barbara, are you here tonight? Okay, I can talk about her. She, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> she said, you know, everybody was standing outside yesterday staring at the sky on Monday. And, and I heard that there's going to be another eclipse in seven years, and I thought, hmm, seven years. Jesus could come. Everybody's looking up in the sky on Monday. Wouldn't it be great if every high saw him, every ear heard him, they heard the trumpet blow, and Jesus said, come on up. That'd be awesome. One day, he's coming, and Paul tells Titus, you need to tell those Cretans that they're to live in expectant hope. They need to look for that, for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, when, uh, when Don and I were engaged uh, to be married, I took my first job as a, as in full-time ministry in Jacksonville, Florida. I was a youth music pastor, and uh, we actually moved our wedding date up uh, to accommodate the church where I was going to work. Uh, it started early, you know, uh, changing our life around to accommodate the church, but it's all good. But uh, anyway, we, we set our wedding date, but I had to go to Jacksonville and begin serving as the youth music pastor before we were married. And so I left Lynchburg, drove all of our stuff down there, moved in, and then I was going to fly home after I had um, done the camps, the youth camps, because they had junior high camp, senior high camp. After I was with the kids in camp, I was going to fly home, get married, and then we were going to drive back and continue serving there. And I got to tell you, I did not want to leave my fiance in Lynchburg. Have you seen my, my fiance? Anyway. <laughs> Did not want to leave Dawn in Lynchburg, but I did because I had to go provide and, and go to my job. So I went to Florida and spent two weeks in the hot Florida sun with a bunch of smelly teenagers <laughs> in a primitive camp that did not have AC. And so after two weeks of being with those smelly junior high boys, two weeks of pillow fights, two weeks of talking junior high boys into taking a shower, at least one shower while we were there, I was so ready to see my future bride. I got on that airplane. It could not fly fast enough. I got into the Lynchburg airport, and I was just like this. Where is she? And then, ah, <laughs> there she was. I was looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of my fiance. We need to live in expectation that Jesus could come any moment. We have to be ready because he's coming, he promised. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Verse 14 talks about our motivation. Why do, we, why do we deny certain things and delight in certain things and live in expectation? Because Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. Theologians call it the great exchange, our sin for salvation. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself the sins of the world so that we could receive his righteousness and be saved. Why do we try to live a life that's pleasing to God? Why do we love him? Because he first loved us and gave himself for us. Jesus 
and his sacrifice is our motivation to live a holy life. Man, I don't want to disappoint Jesus. He gave himself for me. Why would I want to disappoint him pursuing worldly lusts and things that are ungodly? I want to honor God with my life. I want whatever I do in word or deed to, to be done all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything I do, I want it to honor and glorify him. He's my motivation for righteous living. He's my motivation to do what I do. You know, Christians should be caught doing good things all the time. Christians should be caught loving people unconditionally all the time. And then when they say, why are you doing that? Why are you giving this? Why are you going here? Why are you taking your time to, to help this situation or to serve this person? I'm so glad you asked. Because Jesus did the same thing for me. Jesus left heaven for me. Even when I was a sinner, the Bible says. And gave himself for me. He became a servant. He washed feet. And I'm just trying to be like Jesus. Why are you doing that? I'm just trying to be like Jesus. Why are you smiling all the time? Why do you love me even though I disagree with you? I'm trying to be like Jesus. He's my motivation. And then finally, Paul gives Titus an exhortation. He realizes he's in a tough place with some tough people. And Titus is a tough guy, but man, that can wear on you. Ministering to liars, people who are lustful and lazy all the time, that can wear thin. And so Paul encourages Titus with an exhortation. In verse 15, he said, Titus, speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Because your authority doesn't come from you. It comes from the one who sent you, the one who saved you, Jesus Christ. And so speak these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Be faithful. Preach the word. That's what Paul said to his other young apprentice, Timothy. He challenged him. In this present age, Titus, by God's grace, encourage those Cretans to, to, who claim to know Christ to live like it. Encourage them to live like it. To be known by ever-increasing self-control, righteousness, godliness, and a hopeful expectation of Jesus' return. And don't be ashamed. Speak, exhort with all authority and let no one despise you because it's God's word to them. So, this was Titus' challenge to those Cretans and it is our challenge to you Cretans. We're to live like it. We're to be ready. Realize the salvation we've been given. Realize that we're in the process of sanctification. And we need to actively participate in that by denying some certain things, delighting in certain things, looking for Jesus' return at any moment, living like he's coming at any moment. And if you, if you forget why, you need to realize what Christ did for you. You need to tell yourself the gospel every morning when you get up before you go to work. Tell yourself the gospel. Remind yourself of what Jesus did for you. And then be bold in your faith. Don't just use your lips, use your lives. So that people will ask you about the hope that's within you. Do you receive it? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And thank you for Paul 
um, leading Titus uh, to faith in you, Lord. What, a, what an awesome thing to have a young son in the faith. I thank you that Gentiles are welcome into your faith family. I thank you uh, that because of that, we're all sitting here 2,000 years later studying your word and hearing about a young man named Titus and his ministry on an island in the Mediterranean. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that uh, your grace doesn't just save us. Your grace is instrumental in our sanctification. Help us to, to walk like you walk, talk like you talk, love like you loved. And Lord, never let us put our hope and faith in anything on this earth. But help us to always look up and know that heaven is our home. And that one day, we're going to see you face to face. And everything we've done in your name is all that will matter. So Lord, help us to live like it. Help us to be faithful. And uh, one day we'll hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for everybody that's here tonight. I pray that you'd empower us to live for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray.